Bibles um, to begin with to Revelation 2, Revelation chapter number 2. We've been, we're studying at the moment on uh, the establishment of the Lord's church. We looked Wednesday uh, concerning the fact that he promised a perpetuity, a continuation of his kind of church. And today we're going to be looking at uh, what is most often lifted up as the definition of a church, and that is a universal invisible body. And we find that that definition does not fit, uh, one, with what even the definition of the word church is in the Scripture, but also in how church is to be carried out. Uh, a universal invisible body cannot function as the scriptures declare for us as churches to function. And so we're going to be looking at that, that myth of a universal church today, uh, looking at what the scriptures speak here. Now we were, we were looking on Wednesday primarily from Matthew 16 verse number 18 when Jesus promised that he would build his church. And that again is in the perfect tense. He's, I have built, I am building, I will continue to build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In other words, it, it will never die. There's 119 times the word church is used in the Scripture, uh, and it is the word, in all 119 times, it is the word ecclesia. And that word ecclesia simply means a local called-out assembly. The, the Greek word itself was often used uh, in other context of calling together a, a political convention in a particular town. You had somebody running for office. You had somebody saying, hey, I want to I want to be your mayor. And you wanted to show your support to that guy. And you were, you were going to come out and listen to his speeches and, and listen to him in the debates. That, that congregation would come together around that one purpose. And they would call them out. Hey, y'all, I need your support. You all come out. You all come out and listen to me on such and such time. And so that was a, a local called out assembly, a congregation coming together in support of that one thing, whatever that one thing is. And again, it's local and it's called out. And Paul uses that word, I should say the Spirit uses that word, for us throughout the scripture, because Jesus uses the same word, uses that as an example or as even the definition of what he has made us to be as a church, a local called out assembly. Now we are called out together by Christ. He has called us unto himself, he has redeemed us unto himself, and he has called us out locally to assemble together as a church. That's, that's the meaning of that word ecclesia. Now, the, the verse we were looking at on in Matthew 16 on Wednesday, Matthew 16 verse number 18, of the 119 times, that's probably the only time that you will see the word church used in a broader sense than just that local church there at Jerusalem. Uh, the Lord uses it there to describe his kind of churches as we looked at on uh, Wednesday night because he was, he was talking beyond the church there at Jerusalem because he says the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We know very well the church at Jerusalem died out. If that church died out and, and Jesus was talking about them, then Jesus got it wrong and Jesus doesn't get anything wrong, you see. And so he was talking about his kind of church. So that one instance, there's probably the only one out of those 119 times the word church is used that you can look at it and say, okay, that, that one is in a broader sense than just that local assembly that's called out, but rather what comes from them in that promise of perpetuity of church succeeding church succeeding church throughout history. Here in Revelation chapter two and verse uh, chapter two rather and, and chapter three, we see here as John writes these seven letters to these seven churches of Asia Minor. And we see here as he gives this, this direction, as he speaks to them here, 
he, he calls them separately church. Uh, if, if it was to a universal church that he is writing to, a universal invisible body, then he could have just had one letter. Uh, but there was each church, each local assembly, each local ecclesia that is mentioned here in these seven. They all had different problems. They all had different situations. All of them were the body of the Lord Jesus Christ in that area, in that particular locale. All of them had particular things that they needed, that they needed to correct, to straighten up, to be prayed for, helped with, encouraged in, in the things that they were facing as these local assemblies in that day. We find the same thing in, with the, uh, uh, Paul's writing in, in the, the epistles there to the churches, the church at Colossae, the church at, at Ephesus, to, the, uh, to those of Thessalonica. He's, he's, he's writing to those particular churches. Now, other churches got them. In fact, in the book of Galatians, he's writing to several churches in the book of Galatians. And he says that, to the churches of Galatia. He, he makes that point there, that he's writing to several of them. And so we, we never see the term given in the Scripture other than Matthew 16, 18, that would point to a universal, invisible body of believers all coming together. By most people's thinking, by most people's understanding of what church is, is... Uh, when one is saved, they become a member of the church. And that's simply not at all what the Scripture teaches us concerning what our salvation does and who, what a church is and who we are in a church. Our salvation puts us in the family of God. You see, it puts us in His family. It makes us His children. But it is a a joining into or joining with that local body, either by baptism or by uh, way of letter, that one is brought into that local assembly uh, of those individual churches that are were taught of in the Scripture and that has been the case throughout history for the Lord's churches. Notice with me here just a few of these verses in, in Revelation 2. He says, under the angel of the church of Ephesus, write these things, uh, saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. To the angel of the church at Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, he says in verse number 8, write these things, saith the first and the last which was dead and is alive. He says in verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, uh, these things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Verse 18, he says, Unto the angel of the church in Thyatira, write these things. Or I've heard some pronounce it Thuatira. And they say it's how you're supposed to pronounce it. I, it don't look like that to me. But that's what I've heard. Uh, who, these things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes likened to a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. Chapter 3 and verse 1, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Verse number 7, And the angel, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth and shutteth. And no man openeth. And then verse number 14, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write these things, saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So we see these are individual churches that the Lord is, is, is writing to here in the book of the Revelation. He addresses them as individual bodies, individual ecclesias, individual churches with individual problems that needed to be addressed in their day. And we can look and we can see in each one of these churches how maybe at one time in our church life, hey, that's exactly the way we acted. 
And then other times, well, maybe that's the way we acted. And maybe we acted like this. Maybe we, we can look in here at these seven churches and say, man, we act like that and act like that and act like that and act like that. And so we have application to us as Grace Baptist Church. But the Lord is writing these two, these individual churches, these seven churches there in Asia that he's speaking to. And it is by his, his uh, wisdom... It is by his knowledge that he can write these things to these churches and they fit so well with us because, well, we're people just like they were people. And so he knows, he knows our failures. He knows our faults. He knows the things that we need help with. He knows the sins that come in our life. He knows those things that, that we need encouraged in. He knows those things that we need help in. He knows those things that need to be opened up in us and those things that need to be closed up in us. He knows all of those things about us. And so when he addresses them to these individual churches, whether it be these seven here in the book of the Revelation, whether it be Paul's writing in the epistles there, whether it be in the, concerning the church at Jerusalem in the book of Acts that Luke wrote or or whether it be those examples that the Lord gives in the Gospels, those, we have those applications because those are the same things that we endure, the same things that we face, the same things that we go on in, and use and have in our lives. And so we see here very clearly he is riding to individual churches, and they are individual congregations. They are local they are autonomous bodies uh, in the sense that they rule themselves. They don't answer to anybody else. Uh, they are local autonomous bodies called out by the Lord Jesus in those areas to do that work that he has given them to do. But at the same time, we see those clearly, those individual bodies being called out in all of these things. We don't ever, as God's people, don't ever, as Grace Baptist Church, look at those and say, well, he's writing to Laodicea there. He's not writing to me. Because if it fits, he's writing to you in that too, you understand. So what I'm saying is don't use the fact that we are individual bodies and not use the fact that he wrote to them as individual bodies in the Scripture as an excuse not to apply it to yourself. And we do not believe in a universal, invisible church. That's not what we believe at all. We believe in a local called out assembly. But at the same time, we recognize that everything God wrote to Ephesus is applicable to us. And everything he wrote to Thessalonica is applicable to us. And everything he wrote to Laodicea is applicable to us. And so don't use it as an excuse to not heed what he has said in those situations. Now, as we talked about Wednesday night, most people have no problem with the fact that Jesus founded this church with the 12 apostles. Uh, in Luke 6, when he chose them to himself, or and Matthew records, Matthew records it by the seashore. Luke 6 records it on the mountaintop. And it may be that he did it on a mountaintop and they just went to the seashore and maybe he restated it again, whatever the case may be. We find two different places that he calls them his apostles. And there's even debate among our folks that believe in local called out bodies that, well, I'm a seaside Baptist or I'm a mountaintop Baptist, or which one was, it don't matter. He called his 12. And whether it was on the mountain or at the seashore when he did it first, it just is. He did, he called them to himself. Uh, and it, it, so it don't matter which, which one it was. However, most refer, as we talked about Wednesday night, most refer to Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, as the beginning of the church. And they take these church epistles, such as Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, as books that were written to and for that, that invisible church as a whole. Uh, they then say the church became known. This is how church history and most church histories that you look to, uh, they, they say that it became known as the 
Catholic Church, which is the empire-wide church, or the another word that's used is the ecumenical body uh, in the reign of Constantine, 312 giving uh, the and th- uh, and 318 giving the the edict of toleration, and then later making it, calling it to the the religion of Rome. Uh, though Constantine himself would die a sun worshiper, he still worshipped Mithras uh, even upon his death. Although they claim, well, he was yeah he did, but we baptized him on his deathbed, and he became a Christian on his deathbed, and yet. There are several histories that say he was already dead and they poured water on him. And the problem is, it didn't matter whether he was dead or whether he was alive, the pouring of water on anybody don't save them. It don't make them a child of God. So it don't matter where it happened or when it happened, uh, he died a sun worshiper and, uh, uh, and never really, never any evidence at all of worshiping Christ. In fact, he said the reason he gave the Edict of Toleration, the reason he said that uh, Christianity was the new religion of Rome is because he had a vision in the sky of a cross and heard uh, with that vision of the cross in the sky by this sign conquer. That don't sound anything like the Scripture. But that's what he received supposedly as a message by this unconquer and he then went and made it as the chief religion of Rome uh, and he did use the sign of the cross to conquer it with but he himself never was a follower of Christ but nevertheless most believe that's where the Catholic church was started the ecumenical church uh, that that church that empire-wide church started by Constantine when it became the official religion of Rome. And as it grew through the Middle Ages, they say it was corrupted by power and by the hierarchy of the priest, and so it became necessary to have an uprising. And they called it the Reformation. It began with Martin Luther. Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis uh, on the, the wall of the, or on the doorpost of the, of the church there. And uh, those 95 Thesis there began what is known today as the Protestant Reformation, and uh, their desire was to reform that broken body of the church. Well, it didn't reform it. What it did was it split it, and there became many other denominations at that point. But from, from 312, well, it's actually before, I should say before 312, because these, these churches that Constantine brought together under the banner of the the empire-wide church were churches that had already apostatized from the truth of God's word. And so you had two groups of churches at that point. By the time you get to 312, and you had those same two groups all the way up until the time of the Reformation, you had God's true churches, and then you had those apostate churches that came a part of that ecumenical movement of Rome. Um, those true churches of the Lord are are what we're concerned with as far as that doctrine. They they hold they held to that same doctrine that we hold to today. They held to the same things. We have many of their writings. We know what it is they stood on and what they held to uh, during that time. And then you, of course, you had that group, and you had you had the Roman Catholicism that was formed really with Constantine, although Constantine himself was not, never considered himself necessarily the, necessarily the leader of it. He was the one that they would point to in that time. Um, and then you had those that were, there were still some in between. You had those that were still trying to hang on to some right doctrine at that point and also trying to cling on to some of this new stuff that Rome, just like we have today. Just like we have today. Uh, when the Protestant Reformation came along, it kind of exploded then. You had all sorts of different groups now that were formed uh, because of the Protestant Reformation. Now, 
in our day, uh, you, you have all of these different denominations of people saying they believe the exact same thing, and in reality, uh, they do not. Uh, there are those that we can, close, we can more closely align ourselves with in the sense of what they believe concerning Christ and what they believe concerning the gospel, and we can have fellowship with them in regards to those things, but then there's other issues that we just we couldn't get along about in regards to those things because they differ so much from what the Scripture uh, declares and what the Scripture teaches. Uh, but the idea of the universal church uh, is one that was, that was tried to be propagated in that day until today, and it's still, that is the driving force behind it today, this still trying to hold together an ecumenical world church where everybody is a part of it. Yeah, we all believe different, and we all, don't, we all don't think the same things about Christ. We all don't think the same things about baptism. We all don't think the same things about the truth. We all don't think the same things about this and about that. But, 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 but we, we're close to We still all be in one church. It don't work. It's not how it works. It's not how the Scripture teaches it. Uh, for us to to do and to operate. Again, the word ecclesia itself means a local uh, called out assembly. And uh, we see that there are uh, many differences between what the Scripture says and how we are to operate as a church and how a universal invisible body cannot do the things that God has called us to do as individual churches. One of the big ones, of course, uh, that was a, a problem, a sticking point throughout the Middle Ages, throughout the Reformation, and since then is baptism as a means of salvation. There's a great many Catholicism held they, well, I shouldn't say they held to it as, as a means of salvation. That was just one of the things you had to do. And if you did all the things, if you did what they called the sacraments and you completed all the sacraments, that still didn't, still didn't seal nothing for you. You just had that checked off. But, but you, you just had to wait till you got there. Uh, you had to see how bad your sins were, how long you're going to have to spend in purgatory to pay them off, and then God would decide when to allow you in or when not to allow you into heaven. And so the, the, the sacraments of baptism, which would be sprinkling or pouring, uh, would, would be just one of the sacraments, one of the acts that you would do to, to, to be a part. Uh, at least you'd have that work done. Uh, this turned into where, well, if they have to do it, We'll do it to them while they're babies and they can't argue with us about it. And we'll get them in that way. And so they would, they would sprinkle the infants or dip the infants uh, into those particular churches. Um, there was a Dr. Jeter uh, during the, uh, just right before the revolution. And Dr. Jeter was uh, an astute Baptist preacher. His first wife passed away. He remarried, and he married a Presbyterian lady. And uh, she was content to follow him to say she believed the doctrine that he believed. And but then the Lord blessed them with a pregnancy, and she has a child, and it was about to kill her. And Dr. Jeter was not going to allow that baby to be sprinkled. And she couldn't stand it. He was driving her crazy. And she begged him, please, please, let me... Let me get him sprinkled. And Dr. Jeter prayed about it for a while, and he came back to his wife, and he said, all right, I'll, I'll, let, us, I'll let this happen. But he said, I have one requirement. I'm going to hold the child when it happens. And she said, okay, that'll be fine. And so they go to her former church, and they ask her former pastor, would he be willing to do that sprinkling? Of course, he was happy to do it, and he was astounded that Dr. Jeter was coming for him to sprinkle his baby, and Dr. Jeter, was, he insisted he wanted to be the first one that day for the baby to be sprinkled. 
there was a line of them there with them to be sprinkled that morning. And Dr. Jeter stepped up onto the stage with his child, and he has the baby in his arms, and the Presbyterian preacher reached over to get the baby, and Dr. Jeter said, Dear brother, before you take my child to sprinkle him, I want you to open there in the scriptures and show me where it says that you need to sprinkle that you need to baptize my my baby. The Presbyterian pastor closed up his Bible and said, "Let us all rise for the benediction." <laughs> he knew he couldn't. He knew he couldn't show it. And this is what Doctor Jeter was. That's reading. He insisted be the one and to be the one holding it. He knew he couldn't show it to him in the scriptures. And so this this is. These are those things, these works uh, that were added throughout the years uh, that make this, this idea of a universal invisible body that we all in some way belong to as, as God has instructed us to as churches that it simply does not fit what the scripture demands of us in our stand for the truth, in our in our stand for the gospel of Christ and, and to be, according to the Scripture, faithful to what God has delivered to us in His doctrine. Um, go with me to, well, we, we read the other, Luke 6, verse 13 through 16. He, he had, here we have those 12 apostles' names. Those 12 disciples that he chose out to himself, that he added first to the church, as Paul would say there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse number 28. He added them. Listen, he had more than those 12 following him. He had more than those 12 following him, but he started it with them. He started it with those 12. That's who he started with. Now, by the time you get to Acts chapter 1, they are numbered with that 120 of them that are meeting together there in the upper room in, in Acts chapter 1. There's 120 at that point that were made a part of the church, but the Lord started it with his 12 apostles. And in his teaching, those 12 apostles, and as he taught them, especially concerning the ordinances, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, he specified with just those 12 in that teaching as he brought them in there. Uh, by the time you get to Acts chapter, 12, or Acts chapter 1, rather, there's, there is that 120 of them that are found. But notice in Acts chapter 2, go back with me. We looked a little bit at Acts chapter 1 on, on Wednesday. But look with me here in Acts chapter 2. We, we know here... In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches this 10-minute message. Uh, I mean, you read down through it, it takes 10 minutes to read what Peter said to them in his sermon here. And, and, and even if he did, does it really, even you read it really slow, about 10 minutes. And, and Peter gives this, gives this sermon, 3,000 souls are saved at the proclamation of Peter concerning Christ Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. 3,000 souls saved. People hearing him speak. This, this, in the instance, was a miracle of the ear because they heard him speak not only in their own language, but they heard him speak in their own dialect. In their own dialect. In other words, if there was a hillbilly there, they heard Peter speak hillbilly. As well. I mean, that's how, that's how down... Down to us that God brought that message there in Acts chapter 2. They heard in their own dialect. And it tells us there in verse 41. Peter preaches the message. He delivers to them the, the gospel of Christ Jesus there. And it says then, verse 41, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. It doesn't say anything about them being saved because they received his word. That's what that means there. They believed what Peter said. And because they believed what he said, that's their salvation. They were baptized. And it says the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now there are those that say, we'll see right there, the church at Jerusalem, the church 
the church of Jesus was started here on the day of Pentecost with these 3,000 people. Let's know what it says to us there. It says there was added to them. Well, who's the them? The 120 in Acts chapter 1, you see. That 120 were already meeting together. That 120 were already acting as a church. They were already worshiping together. They were already praying together. They were already fellowshipping together. They were already conducting business together as a church. They were already doing those things in Acts chapter 1. Jesus called them a church already before that. He said so in Matthew chapter 16. He said so in Matthew chapter 18. He'd already called them a church. Here, what took place in Acts chapter 2 is the Lord simply added to the church. Get it big. To the church, but he added to the church. He added 3,000 souls to the church that day. And so it was already in existence. It was just that they were added to. The them here in focus is those that were already spoken of in chapter 1. Again, who are already conducting themselves as a church. Christ also gave his church the ability to govern themselves. He gave them there in Matthew chapter 16... Verse number 19, he said in chapter 18, the promise of their perpetuity, that they would continue on. And he says there in chapter 19, he gives them authority there. Uh, uh, let me turn back there to that. Matthew 16, verse number 19, he says, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. And then in chapter number 20, or uh, chapter 18, rather, uh, we, we read there in verse 15 down through verse number uh, 19, and then again in verse number 20, where he, he tells there how discipline was to be conducted among the church. If thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And it shall, and if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you that if two or if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything, they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father, which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And so when the church at Corinth had all those things that they were doing wrong, Paul rebuked them and told them what they ought to do. But Paul didn't, Paul could have, because of his position as that apostle to the Gentiles, but Paul didn't, Paul didn't command them to. He told them this is what you should do. Because that church was an individual, autonomous body of the Lord Jesus. And Paul said this is what you ought to do. I, he said, I know if I was there, that's what I would do. And he, tell, and he, he gives that description. You go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter number 2, uh, verse number 6 through verse number 8. This is in regards to the man that had his, was, he was committing adultery. He had his father's wife, which I would assume would be his stepmother, uh, that he had, he had taken for himself. And Paul said that such sin had, wasn't even named among the Gentiles. And, and he told them that they should, that they should, uh, discipline him to put him out from the body they did that uh and according to the proper order of discipline and this guy here in acts chapter or in second uh, Corinthians chapter 2 comes back and he is repented and he is asked to be restored and they so they check with paul what should we do he, he's 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 repented he's he's made things right he's he doesn't have this in his life any longer. We, we got rid of him before. What, what should we do now? And Paul says here in verse number 6, Sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which was inflicted of many. So that contrarywise, so that you all did exactly what you were supposed to do, and it was sufficient. It did its work. It did what it's supposed to do. 
That's the, the purpose of discipline is always to win that, that weary one back. That's, it's always the purpose of discipline. The purpose of discipline is always to win that one back. It's not for, it's not for vengeance. It's not to get them back. It's not to show them a thing or two. That's never the purpose of discipline. Discipline is always in hopes of repentance. That that one will repent. That that one will be back, be brought back into the fellowship. That's its purpose. And so, he says, sufficient to such one was this punishment which was inflicted of many. So that contrary wise, he said, ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that ye should confirm your love to him. Paul says, I, I beg you to do this. This is what you should do. And Paul doesn't give them a command to. Because this was that, it was that church at court. That was their responsibility. They were governing themselves. That's what they should This Paul's simply saying, this is what you should do. This, this is what, this is what you, I, I beg you to even, he says. But this, but he, he didn't command them to. Because this was that church's responsibility to carry these things out. This is what we find in the scripture. If it was indeed a universal body, then Paul had all authority to say, do this and do it now. But he doesn't do that. This is what you should do. I, I beg you to, in fact, he said. I beg you to do this, but this is what you should do. The authority was in this church, this church at Corinth. They had that individual authority. They were a local autonomous body of the Lord Jesus. Now again, Paul, being the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul would have commanded them. I'm sure they would have said, yes, okay, Paul. I'm sure that they would, they would have responded in that way, but that's not how Paul addressed them. Because they were an individual body of the Lord Jesus. How can a universal church carry out worship as a church? We're commanded to worship together. Uh, we read that verse this morning, even in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as a manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as we see the day approaching. We are commanded to meet together, but how... Does a universal worldwide body meet together? We can't do that. It's never what we were called to do. It's we're a local assembly called out together to meet uh, around the things of the Lord to worship Him locally. And if we don't believe the same thing. We don't hold to the same doctrine, especially concerning the gospel and concerning our Lord and what salvation is. If we, if we don't believe the same on, on the, the, the reality of the holiness of our God and uh, the fact that He is who He says He is, Christ is who He says He is, if we don't hold the same doctrine to how can two walk together, as Amos says, if they, they don't agree? Now, there's room. There's always room for us if, I mean, on the minor things, the secondary things that we might not have have same understanding of. Maybe we see things just a little different. They ain't none of us agree 100% in here. But on the big things we do. On those, on those realities of what the Scripture teaches, we do. It's those things that we're not given full, full uh, teaching on, full understanding on that are left to our interpretation, those things that God has left for us that, that we have to give one another room on. But on those big things, those things that God has clearly spelled out for us in His Word, we are... We ought to be the same on. We ought to believe the same on those things. How could a universal church carry out the ordinances of the Lord's church? When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he called only the twelve. He had other believers even there outside the room. That even helped set up the room for them. But they were not there in the room with them. He only went in with his 
12. And even before he instituted the supper, he sent Judas out and told him to go do what he had to do. And Judas left to go and betray him. And then he, with those other 11, he established his ordinance of the Lord's Supper with them. And what its purpose was and how it was to be conducted. And so when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he only called his 12. Likewise, the authority of baptism was given in the commission. Matthew chapter 28 we read there here, this is our mission, this is the work that we are to be about, this is what we are to be concerned with, this is what we are to be, it is to be our chief goal, our chief purpose as Grace Baptist Church to carry out this commission. Jesus came and spoke unto them saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. All exousia is that word, all authority belongs to him, all power, all authority is given to the Lord Jesus, both heaven and earth. He says, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world or the end of this age. Amen. Now that's our, that's our purpose, that's our mission, that's what we are to be doing as individuals out of Grace Baptist Church. We are to be a witness to those around us wherever we may be, even going out into the world uh, preaching the gospel of Christ Jesus. And this is what he's commanded for us to do, not just the pastor, not just the Sunday school teachers, every member of this church, every child of God that is a part of this church has the responsibility to be a witness to those around them. And we are to teach them, we are to teach them particularly the gospel of Christ. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Then he says baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. He doesn't tell us anywhere to get anybody saved. Why didn't he tell us to get anybody saved? Because we can't save anybody. That's not our responsibility. That's God's responsibility. He's the one that does that. We water. We plant. He's the one that gives the increase. He's the one that makes it grow. He's the one that does the saving. And so he doesn't give that to us. He doesn't put that responsibility on us. Go. Teach. And then baptize. Who we baptize? Those that believe it. Those who are saved, we baptize them in the name of the Father, and Son, and the Holy Ghost. And then after they are baptized, we continue to teach, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And so it's, it's a process that is a continuation. It's a process first starts with the gospel and then the baptizing of those that believed, bringing them into the body of the church, and being brought then into the body of the church, there is a discipling that takes place after that. It is a continued teaching as we continue to teach them the Word of God. That is our mission. That's what we're to be about. That's what we're to be doing. This is given to His churches. Universal Invisible Church can't do this. They, they don't have the ability to do this. It is the commission of his local New Testament churches. Sadly, sadly, you have more of those folks that believe a universal church that are doing it, though, than those that have the authority to do it. We need to be busy about fulfilling our obligation. We need to be busy about fit, fulfilling the mission that Christ has given for us to fulfill. How could a universal church discipline in the body? Especially since that you have you might discipline what you might discipline for is false doctrine, apostasy which another part of the so-called body might practice and believe. 
And we can, we can point them out. And we do. Well, that guy don't believe the gospel. That guy don't believe the truth of God's word, but we don't have no power to discipline him. And if we did, he wouldn't care. <laughs> Even if we, if we said, we, we, we mark you. So, mark me. He wouldn't care. It, it, it belongs to an individual local body. That, that purpose, that, that responsibility of discipline. Go over to 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse number 4. First Corinthians 5, verse number 4. Paul says, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now this guy is the one that he's speaking of here is the one who who had his father's wife uh, as he says there in verse 1 speaking to that that this adultery this guy was com committing and he, he says that when they're gathered together what they should do is to deliver that guy unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus he says, your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of, spirit, of sincerity rather and truth. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, now that was another letter that Paul had written that he hadn't that we don't have record of, but they, they had received this letter. He said, I wrote to you in another epistle, not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of the world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must she needs go out of the world. So I'm not saying you don't have any contact with them. He said you can't fellowship with them, is what Paul is describing here. You can't condone these actions. You can't condone these behaviors. He says, um, again, verse, verse 11, he says, But now I have written unto you not to company, not to keep company, if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such and one, no, not to eat. Don't have fellowship with him. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within. So in other words, Paul says, you all got to make that decision. You all got to do that judging on your part. You got to make that judgment about that individual. If they refuse to repent of that sin, they refuse to, to, to give that sin up, they continue in that. If there is no repentance in them, he said, then you have to put them out. Once you put them out, then I can say, yes, that's the issue. That person right there is an idolater. That person right there is a coveter. That person right there is a fornicator. They, they refuse to obey. They refuse to, to listen to the admonishment of the church. They continue to end their wickedness. And so Paul says, when you judge them within, then we can judge them without. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within. But them that are without, he says, God judges. Them that are without, God judges. So there is a, there is a protection that is afforded to the body. There's a protection that God has given for us as a body. That we, when one is disciplined, Paul said it as if we had, it, it, we read there in second that we're turning their, we're turning their flesh over to Satan for Satan to have his way. In other words, you're, you're opening them up to that chastening of God on them, and God would use allow Satan to be used in that situation there. And so he says, verse 
uh, 13 again, but them that are without God just therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. And so that's a universal body cannot perform this act or this work of discipline and the importance of what it is. Lastly, how can a universal invisible body be a body? The idea of the body is that we know where all the members are. Spiritually, physically, and how that body is made, how it's fit together, how it works. A universal body cannot know how the body is fit together. The universal body cannot know the burdens that one another has and that we need to need help carrying. The, a, a universal body cannot care for one another. It cannot have that love one for another that we are called to have as God's children. And, and he speaks to that in, in first, we won't go over and read all those verses because it's just about the whole chapter there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul speaks to these realities about how we are brought together by our Lord, how we are fitly framed together there and how, how we operate there as a body, how that's, how that's to be in us as the, the, the church of the Lord Jesus. You see, Jesus made his church during his earthly ministry. They were a body there at Jerusalem, local and autonomous. And they went out and made other bodies that were local and autonomous that they might go out and make other bodies, local, autonomous bodies in the particular places where they are at. We as Grace Baptist Church is a church of the Lord Jesus Christ we are the body of Christ in this place, met together, and we are created in this place, brought together in this place to do the work that God has given us to do as a local called out assembly together. Let's all stand and be dismissed. I rushed through a lot of that. I hope it made sense.